So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. This is Taylor Baker, back from drinking the movies with one of our staff writers, Patrick Ho, joining me today to talk about a few different films. Patrick, you've been with us since, I want to say, July. Yeah, um, I think July. Thank you for joining me today. I know that it's not the most uh, convenient thing to fly back from San Francisco, work a full week, and hop on the recording machines, but uh, you're willing to do it for a discussion on Don't Look Up, The Hand of God, and West Side Story today. Uh, what do you think about these titles before we get started? Well, first I want to say I'm really excited to be here. I have big mics to fill for big Michael Clausen. Um, yeah, always enjoy hearing you guys talk, so I'm really excited to be part of this. But for the three titles today, um, I think we have a good, diverse group of movies here. We have um, Don't Look Up, which uh, that's how I that's how I'll start things off with. Ugh. And what's I story, which really surprised me, and Hand of God, which I'm less than mixed on. Yes, I, um, I think that we're pretty similar in much of our reactions. It sounds like you responded more strongly than I did on two, and I responded more negatively than you just barely on Don't Look Up, which is inviting all of the comparisons of not looking up when you're in the theater at the screen. Um, but alas, as always, we'll do first impressions. Today, we're going to talk about a few titles coming out in January. The first of which is a Guy Ritchie film called Operation Fortune. Uh, I'll leave that that colon after name to you, though, uh, Patrick. What is that? How do you pronounce that? Oh, geez. Um, Ruse de Guri? And that's what it sounds like to throw someone under the bus. Thank you very much. Is this French? Is this Spanish? I don't know. I hope we'll find out, but I'm going to guess that with uh, guys' um, sensibilities, that it's probably more of a, a European leaning. So I would think French or Spanish, uh, like in Spain. Yeah. But uh, without Espana. further ado, let's find out. Contractor, you possess a unique set of skills. What's that? Power map. You said it was clear. I said the front was clear. Ah. Front, back, right, wrong. Anyway, shall we? So what we got? Something rather nasty has been stolen. We have to stop that getting onto the open market. Who's the buyer? Greg Simmons, the billionaire arms dealer. Oh, a lot of very serious faces up here, aren't there? You can't catch this fish with conventional lures. I'm sorry? The lure being? Danny Francesco. The movie star. Greg Simmons' favorite movie star. And how do we get him? Blackmail. Who's to care? All right, Patrick. Orson Fortune. Is that indeed a sexy name or not? Uh, I mean, when, when it's on Jason Statham, maybe it's sexy enough. <laughs> In a, uh, in a nice looking suit. 
and that was uh ruse de guerre from what i gather i'll uh i'll fully back over you in the bus now and pronounce yeah. it correctly after hearing someone else pronounce it for me now is it in spain it is like it in france is it monte carlo i don't know exactly it sounds like it means blackmail um and fortune operation fortune is the last name of jason statham's character as you indicated what do you think of this trailer um i think it i think it looks fine as i'm very mixed on guy Ritchie's filmography in general um i am excited that he has taken all his um blockbuster cachet and it's kind of stepping back to what he seems to be more comfortable with in recent years with the gentleman and um and this one and I am a big fan of his Man from Uncle movie. So, and this kind of looks like it's operating on the same space. Um, he's bringing back a lot of his, his little cadre of, of actors. Um, Hugh Grant's back from The Gentleman and Man of, Man from Uncle. So that's exciting. And Hugh Grant always looks like he's having fun in these movies. So, I mean, for a January release, I think it's falling into that gentleman slot, and it's hoping to STX is hoping to make that sweet, sweet gentleman money. That's it's interesting you're making that comparison. Um, that's actually one of the ones that I didn't really like as much. I think mm. that his last film, Wrath of Man, was a lot more um, enjoyable and harrowing to watch, at least in the theater, with that um, great sound effect of violence that it had in that final shootout sequence, especially. Yeah. Um, Eddie Marson's in it, as you mentioned, the Guy Ritchie, you know, cast of everybody that you're familiar with. Um, it's nice to see Aubrey Plaza play uh, this type of a role. I think she's got the right wit and humor to mm -hmm. really chime in and be a strong female character in a Guy Ritchie world. But that um, little bit of accent that we heard from her, I don't know. I don't. I didn't pay enough attention <laughs> then. I, I didn't notice the accent. Maybe they're trying to hide it. Maybe it sounds a little rough from that one line. She only had one line. Did it sound like she was trying to play Italian or, or Spanish or what did it sound like to you? <laughs> I don't know. It was definitely, it sounded like Aubrey Plaza doing an accent. Okay. I, I mean, I, I guess I just always uh, associate her with sarcasm. So, mm. you know, it's, it's hard for me to really pigeonhole what her intentions are uh, when she makes a choice like that. Um, but it, I think it looks fun, big, like you said, it fits that January slot, uh, where you can try to make some money off of having people come out to have a good time. Um, the premise of Hartnet needing to go undercover, um, as an actor to figure out whatever is happening, um, and relay that to the team to pull off whatever the job is. It's a fun conceit. Um, I think watching Josh Hartnett play the movie star he was supposed to be is, you know, something that I'm up for no matter what. <laughs> yeah, good, good meta casting in, in that sense. And generally, I will say that I like STX, who is distributing this movie um, as a studio. I feel like they at least are making original movies out there that are not necessarily just, you know, for kids. Yeah, original IP adult films is exactly heavily what they distribute. And normally they actually have, you know, a film with over a million dollars in budget, but underneath yeah. that, you know, 50 million mark. Um, so they're always in the middle. They they are interesting. Um, I, I can't say that I've seen one from them recently, but I, I can't remember if they did. I, I think they normally collaborate with Braun 
and that's a pretty reliable collaboration. Yeah. They're they're co-producing this with Miramax. Um, so we're uh, seeing Miramax return... attempting the comeback. Yeah, exactly. So you know what? It's an underdog story. Josh Harnett, Miramax. I'm all for it. It, it is an underdog story. Um, yeah. Uh, any last thoughts on this, or should we push through to the black phone? Let's see the black phone. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. What's new? The flyer. The paper's calling the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. Goof. Well, isn't that just peachy king? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part time magician. Are those black balloons in there? Would you like to see a magic trick? I have an announcement to make. One of our students, Finney Blake, was abducted. All right, Patrick, that was the trailer for The Black Phone. What do you think? I I think this is going to be an interesting movie on a meta level. Just because this is Scott Derrickson and his creative team coming off of some creative strife with Marvel Studios from Doctor Strange 2. And he's kind of going back to his back to basics with what he's been known for um, in the past, going back with Blumhouse and um, making like a nice little horror movie. He's even reteaming with um, the, his star in Sinister, Ethan Hawke, to make this kind of like stripped down supernatural horror movie that um, um, it could be fun. It seems like a neat little movie that has style. I always love Ethan Hawke and I'm always down to see a nice little thriller on a chilly February day. It sounds like you're more interested in watching it for things happening in culture rather than the film itself, which does not speak highly of the film trailer that you just watched um and my opinion of, of what you're saying uh i wasn't aware that he'd shot this after reaching the difficulties i thought he'd shot this in between with the intention of still shooting dr strange is that not correct uh i honestly do not know okay um interesting either way um yeah there's a meta thought that i had watching this as well which is like oh, Jesus, they're going to make one okay movie like mm. The Purge with Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke is going to elevate the material so far that you're going to think that you actually have something. And then you're going to create a universe, Bloomhouse. And yes. all the movies after that are going to be derivative and annoying, except for one of them, which is going to be accidentally good because you get a great independent filmmaker or something. And then it's yeah so that's the thought that i had when i was uh watching the trailer it is interesting like i'm i'm much more interested in watching this than it chapter one and two yes um because this this is an original attempt at creating ip um you get to watch ethan hawk go crazy which he's so incredibly talented at doing Love. um that he's in a limited series this year i think it's on prime video called the good lord bird maybe it's that's on showtime um and it's actually hard to watch because he's so effectively crazy um and the way that he speaks and the religiosity that that is um beaming out of him is just so scathing and scraping 
and in this 1800s pattern of speech but he's so incredibly convincing and talented in it um yeah i'm i'm thrilled to watch him be a villain he could very well be one of the most interesting villains next year um the played out psycho kinesis um you know having telepathic images from dead children through a cutoff phone it's a little bit gimmicky but you know it's probably going to do good business for a horror film and i would say that um i as ethan hawk has gotten older his face has just gained more and more interesting as the wrinkles develop on it he's i mean he was a pretty boy in the 90s with um, reality bites and wherever else he was in but now he just looks so interesting as a person as an actor you just get so much from just seeing his face and his eyes are terribly expressive exactly which is which is interesting because he seems to be in this mask throughout this movie where we can really only just see his eyes yeah yeah it's um until at one point it looks like it gets broken uh very very interesting i Mm -hmm. i like the black balloons and the black van yeah i think that's interesting um but yeah, we'll see. It sounds yeah. like we both are more intrigued by the narratives around Bloomhouse and uh, these actors and directors than the film itself. But that still makes it a curiosity worth seeing. Um, and as someone who's not a horror fan, you know, that's as good as you're going to get from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. On to the feature films that we're going to be discussing today. Let's go ahead and get started with. Don't Look Up, the new film from Adam McKay. I have a tattoo of a shooting star on my back. Oh, that's that's terrific. (laughs) This could be a complete disaster. This is already a disaster. (laughs) You know that girl from Live TV said we're all gonna die? No. have the FBI put that bag over your head. They don't do that. The CIA does, but I made them do it. You know, I had a feeling. It's a good feeling because that is what I did and it was very funny and cool. All right, Patrick, don't look up. Adam McKay, what do you think? Oh, geez. I don't know how you feel about Adam McKay, but this is one of I think the, the big short is one of the most interesting yes. ex- like film essays that's a movie, but is a film essay. Um, and I think that this is a terrible misstep. Yeah, and he's kind of he's kind of going for kind of it has a lot of his styles from the the last three movies he's made. Um, was it um the Big Short, um Vice, and Don't Look Up? He's kind of do, he's kind of doing a similar aesthetic, except I just felt that this movie was both visually ugly and yes, <laughs> it's one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen, <laughs> and also just on an intellectual level just an ugly ugly movie yeah a mean movie i i came out of the theater and i had to give my reaction to the the uh press representative and um you know the person before me was like trying to hold themselves back and like you know middling bad and i was like like it's ugly and derogatory and like mean-spirited without being nuanced like it's just like it's so negative in so many different ways that 
it's almost interesting that they thought this was a good direct, like that they kept going. Like they, they never tried to change the tone in the middle. They just yeah. kept doubling down. And I really thought that he, that like halfway through the movie, he was going to figure out that like he was messing up and like change some stuff. Um, especially with all the talent he has assembled. But um, let me try to go pull up the cinematographer. Do, do you know who it is off the top of your head? Linus Sandgren, who is, who I don't know. Oh, he's worked. Oh, he did La La Land, which is a beautiful movie. And he did First Man. And he did First Man, which both beautiful movies. Um, no Time to Die as well. So. Yes. It, so it it's not the reason it looks bad i i almost think is like an artistic choice to make it look bad um hmm. which i don't know what to do like i don't know if he like if he thought that by doing that he was saying something deeper about what he was already saying it's not very clear and the ugliness is just so like fully patinaed in that you yeah. can't really layer it anywhere and the thing about the big short is that all those performances were not only fun, but memorable and that Christian Bale was actually incredible. Yeah. The thing about vice is Christian Bale is actually incredible. The thing about don't look up is no one is that. And a lot of people are caricatures and are not really acting. They're showing up as themselves wearing wigs. Everyone's pitched really poorly in terms of tone throughout yes. this movie and actually watching leo dicaprio play this um bumbling scientist um astronomer person i thought he they i thought a lot about george clooney in the coen brother movies where he plays an idiot and i think i felt like that's kind of where they're going for with leo those um, almost never work for me except for the one that's literally built around him being an idiot which is hail caesar which is one of yeah. my favorite movies of all time yeah, and I think where the Coen Brothers is cynicism, because this is Don't Look Up itself is a very cynical movie. It's made by a person who is deeply angry. Um, but I I think what works about the Coen Brothers in their deep cynicism, which is something that they're criticized heavily for, is that at the end of the day, they also seem to truly love humanity. Mm -hmm. I think they love their characters. They love people and they love the good spiritedness beneath, um, all this wrongheadedness and there's none of that there's no earnestness up. here there's no sincerity no. there's just ugliness and every time there's a chance for it, like i thought maybe this little romance between jennifer lawrence and timothy chalamet that was popping up or when melanie linsky shows up um right when there is room for it and when linsky's just... there it is at its best yes i do agree with that but he just undercuts it all with just more, more, I won't say humor. That's not the right word for it. Just uh, att attempting black comedy, attempting acerbic witticisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but kind of missing out tonally on, on keeping things cohesive. I mean, if you have two giant movie stars and neither of them, play versions of themselves that are fun or particularly engaging characters, then you're already kind of playing with fire that like you can get burned by having flat lead actors who are giant megastars. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, that's why, uh, David O. Russell, love him or hate him, knows exactly what to do with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. He gives them characters and makes them go. And that's why he never has a misstep with them. Even if you don't like the movie, you don't think the performance is the reason why it fails. And in don't look up, there's no performance to really give the, you know, the most committed performances are probably the general line to get money for no reason. And then (laughs) Melanie Linsky and her level of, of betrayal and hurt and compassion and love and forgiveness throughout the arc of the thing. Um, but otherwise it's just Jonah Hill mocking it's Meryl Streep mocking it's um, I mean, I guess I will say Tyler Perry is awesome. I, he's I think just Rob- so fully uh, believable to me in these bigger roles. Yeah. I agree. Tyler Perry is a great character actor and every time he pops up in something, I'm gen- I'm genuinely excited to see what he does. He, he's uh, one of the best parts of Gone Girl. Yeah. He, he really is one of the best parts of Gone Girl. He's really good in Vice too. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, yeah. And sorry, I almost mixed up Vice with W. <laughs> the Josh Brolin Easy movie. to do. Easy to do. So I, I almost like, wait a minute. Was that, was that Tyler Perry? Was that, um, Jeffrey Wright? Um, but Rob Morgan, I also thought did a, um, he, he plays the, um, a, oh, I forgot what the space force was called. Once again, and McKay makes a joke about whatever actual space entity, that government entity that Rob Morgan was a part of, but he's a scientist who helps, um, Leo right, and right. Jennifer Lawrence. He, he's part of the, uh, like an astronomer's society that's like observing to make sure that there's no impacts or, or solar mm-hmm. flares that knock out humanity. And he, I thought he also really grounded his character in this kind of. He did it first and then he yeah. got ridiculous as they're leaving the tv show and they're having like these giant um like shakespearean play moments in like a street wall at you know people are throwing chairs through windows um like outside that restaurant yeah yeah but should we we talk a little bit about what that because we're talking around what yeah yeah why don't don't why don't you give me a synopsis of don't look up other than that we shouldn't look up at the screen when it's on (laughs) or click on it on when it eventually comes out on netflix um yep so don't look up is about two low-level astronomers who discovered this giant comet that is making its way towards earth that can potentially make the whole human race extinct so they go on this journey to try to warn people about first by going to the government where they interact with Meryl Streep who plays the president of the United States and eventually go on a press tour um, where they meet Kate Blanchett who plays a news reporter and Tyler Perry and quickly find that people are not that interested in a global um, in a global catastrophe event as opposed to being more interested in making money and seeing how that goes along the way and this whole thing plays out like a black Blake Edward style comedy where um people are high into a hundred and just um yeah people are just high high into a hundred and I don't know how would you describe it Taylor? Yeah I, I think that I'd echo a lot of that. There's a lot of um so much happens simultaneously ironic and unironic like annoying criticism of culture um and 
I'll make a comparison later um, about why this fails. But I, I do think that, I mean, at, at the start, why are the numbers going down is something Kate DiBiaschi, Jennifer Lawrence's character, asks Leonardo DiCaprio's Dr. Randall Mindy um, when he's doing calculations and her face gets all bug-eyed and enormous and, you know, as they're realizing and he dismisses the room and it's just, it. there's supposed to be a dramatic tension that doesn't exist. Mm. Um, and from the start, it doesn't exist. They're forcing, like they're attempting to create these stakes that never actually feel like stakes. And the stakes are that the world is going to end and that no one believes these doctors who are from the middle of America and no one will listen to them because they're scientists and everyone else is an idiot. That is even, the premise of the film. Or not even just disbelieves. Frankly, they also just don't care because they have bigger interests. Um, Some of them do. I, I would say that very few do. Mm-hmm. Very, very few do. Because you're talking about like maybe three characters. Maybe Kate Blanchett, but definitely uh, President Orlean and Jason Orlean, which are Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill. Yeah. Um, those are the ones that don't care. I would argue that Mark Rylance's Peter Isherwell really cares. He's just focused on how to make money from it. Yeah. And, you know, otherwise there's no actual positions of power really depicted. There's no other decision makers. It's like the president makes every choice, um, which is kind of another reason why I don't like it. It's it's very much like fan fiction. Like there's one yeah. person to blame for every problem. Um, and there's there's definitely not like there's different layers you know that go all the way up the chain of command that are just totally overlooked here um which the the argument is because of the president there's just a lot of derivative and derogatory fan fiction type stylings here that are very unbelievable if you just examine like a day-to-day process of like what it's like to report to your superior that there is a foreign body that's going to attack the terrestrial continent of north america like there's so many different checks and balances in our military structure that would um kick in that are totally separate from the president that it's just it's a hard premise to believe on that angle but if we go with it it's just like you said it's it's ugly to look at and i think what's particularly um annoying to me is that as a lover of first man and i i think it looks amazing Let's remove uh, Sangren, the cinematographer, from the picture. Okay, who's this film edited by? Hank Corwin, the editor of The New World, The Tree of Life, and Song to Song. If that cinematographer and this editor can't make this movie work, then it's a problem from the top down. And I, I really do think that it all starts on the page with David Serrata and Adam McKay creating the story of... Uh, simultaneous nepotism and um people being willfully ignorant and checks and balances not existing which it just doesn't ring true it's not an actual criticism film um it's like a shell of one does that make sense to you would you echo any of that or disagree no i absolutely agree and to think about amike's previous films and i'm not even talking about vice or the big short but you're talking about talladega nights you're talking about stepmothers Talladega Nights, Anchorman, like those critiques of whatever structures that they're critiquing, Talladega Nights, kind of like Middle America, Bush, 
um, mm-hmm. Anchorman with media, which are all critiques that he's trying to do in Don't Look Up, mm-hmm. right? Um, those critiques, gross, those critiques of feel much more powerful just because it's couched around an actually good comedy. Well, where and, and it's, it's not sentimental. It's sentimental yeah, exactly. and it's nuanced. Exactly. It's it's completely nuanced. And that's also why I don't think Anchorman 2 um, works because then it becomes of, it becomes outrightly just a a, a hacky critique of <laughs> cable news, 24-hour news. Something that we've all seen before that we can just watch Jon Stewart or whomever make fun of cable news. You don't need an Anchorman 2 to tell us that cable news is bad. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I I I also have separate questions about that point in time because I believe that's when uh, he and Will Ferrell were starting to have a terrible relationship. Yeah, um, was like right after the other guys, and I think that was right before Anchorman too, because um, they'd made Gary Sanchez Productions, um, and then there were all these issues, um, and now they're they don't even talk to each other. You know, the mm-hmm. the guys that made the most memorable 2000s comedies and like created comedy essentially for a generation now don't talk to each other it's kind of a weird thing um but i i I do think that there's a a lot of merit to that um are they are they the comedy lennon and mccartney where um and mckay's kind of cynicism is kind of reined in by the will ferrell's Ferrell's earnestness and compassion despite his own echoing of a lot of the concerns that mckay has i think you are making a really smart point. Yeah, I think that that is possible. Um, Someone has been watching Get Back, <laughs> the Peter Jackson movie. Yes, I I need to catch up with it. It's uh, got a few parts to it, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So there's there's all these big stars. How how do all these big stars work for you in uh, correlation? I guess there's Ron Perlman's uh, you know reductive. A uh, different generation racist who's sent to murder the asteroid. Um, there's Ariana Grande's Riley Binna and Kid Cudi's DJ Cello for some of the bigger, more reductive um, characters. It all, it all just feels extremely hacky, for the lack of a better word. All these jokes—they just seem like easy targets and jokes that I don't, I don't see the purpose of anymore. Like we. You can do better than um, do an airheaded um, pop star and a what does a DJ actually do type of joke at this point. And I mean, granted, I love seeing Ron Perlman in movies, but even then, like we've seen, we've seen this character in Doctor Strangelove. We I don't know what we're doing in twenty twenty one making these same jokes. I don't. I just don't understand who the target is. Yeah, that. Um... I, I would actually take almost everything you said and boil it down to one thing, which is like this whole thing's derivative. It's just yeah. derivative um, attempt at, at criticism, at um, politics, at the, the nature of humans. It, and it's a very, um, I, I think it's derogatory in that it's really talking down to the audience. Yes. Um, and, that's why I don't know what to do with how ugly it looks and how well the team is that's around it. Like I, I really don't know what to do. Cause I mean, comparatively vice isn't the most beautiful looking film, but it's shot, I believe by and edited by the same T 
team people. and it mm -hmm. just looks so much more interesting and it's so much more um, invigorating and you know a lot starts on on the page but basic framing doesn't start really on the page it it you know you're still gonna block and and shoot and light fairly competently and uh or you should and that doesn't really happen except for maybe the midwest house scenes if at all so with vice and um, the big short they're both based on true real life stories and real life events and mm -hmm. this one is completely fabricated fiction which i think hey allows you should McKay, look up <laughs> <laughs> which allow which allows mckay to to really go buck wild and i think his fleet of fancies um kind of got away from it at least with vice and the big short that tethered him to reality and even though vice he creates kind of this caricature of 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 dick cheney but he still had to stay somewhat down to earth, right? Mm -hmm. So, and also just for this sake, much much has been said about how much money Leo and Jennifer Lawrence has made from this movie. I think they make a combined fifty five million dollars, and the reported budget on Don't Look Up is only seventy five million. And I'm sure Meryl Streep and Kate Blanchett got paid as well. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. I. I think that part of the issue here is that Netflix's business plan is how many people that already pay click play and watch for more than a minute um, or five minutes, whatever their new measuring tool is. And I think that volume is actually pretty high. And um, I believe that very few people actually go through and rate things poorly. Yeah. And normally what they do is if they like something, they say they like it so that they get it more in their queue, but they don't actively dislike things. So I, I worry that they'll think that this is a success and keep going for it. And I worry that their platform, it, you know, that's an apt business strategy. It's not a bad one for them. Um, and frankly, I don't think Netflix cares about whether or not their movies look good. Because if you, there's much has been talked about The Power of Dog, which I think is beautiful to look at on screen. But a lot of people have complained about the way it looks, it looks on television and on through mm. their Netflix app. So I wonder if the look of Don't Look Up may play better on Netflix on your television screen than does in movie theaters. Well, I think it, it definitely depends on your television. I don't yes. know about you, but I, I have a 4K screen and I have the 4K subscription. Oh, humble so, brag. Um, well, it's it's not really humble brag. It's <laughs> it's very careful brag, about brag. Friday shopping um, and, and spending a month figuring out which one's going to have the best blacks and which one's got the least amount of LED panel outages and lots lots of uh time spent doing that but um so a lot of the 4k streaming things do look fairly good on my television um you know and things like the lost daughter um look gorgeous mm. um i don't i mean we'll we'll get there when we get there but i do think the hand of god is uh it has moments that look very very good and are yeah. very interesting visual cues and ideas that it's boiling together um so but in general yeah they they you know let bruised look kind of totally flat uh Halle Berry's film so there's yeah there's a back and forth um was the lost daughter produced by Netflix or is it just distributed 
That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine it's probably just distributed because it was Maggie's first film. And I don't yeah. believe that she had a pre-existing relationship. Um, yeah. Unless she did the kindergarten teacher or whatever that was called. With but them. I find, I guess I find the big blockbusters that Netflix has been producing. So your red notices, um, things like that. They generally look flat and You're absolutely um, flushed right. out. Yeah, the the best that their originals really ever look, and you're going to agree with this completely, and I expect complete seriousness from you, is Michael Bay's films. That is the best that Netflix can do. <laughs> Michael, Bay knows, Michael Bay knows how to spend his budget, and I don't know if... Adam McKay has never been necessarily a great visual filmmaker, and I don't, I'm sure he himself would say that, yeah. but with with this one, just... I don't know. It just... It's just one... It just looked really ugly, and I I don't know if it's the budget. I don't know if it's just how much free reign he got. It I don't know what he did with this. Um. So, but before we move on to the next title, what do you think of the finale? Um. This is coming out. It should everybody should have had a chance to see it, and if you haven't, skip to the next um, time because we'll we'll talk about the end here everybody dies and uh it's not particularly engaging or engrossing there's no catharsis there's really no emotionality experienced on my end the asteroid seemed to be where about five million dollars of the budget went if i was gonna guess just because just that that flame effect at the end right was a million itself so microsoft paint what do you think of this I felt absolutely nothing. There was no catharsis to it. Once again, I thought maybe it'll go down to this existential crisis of like our life is about to end. Maybe it'll go into maybe a little bit of melancholia or there's a new movie coming out about a global extinction called Silent Night. That kind of deals a little bit about um, the kind of existential... It is out, yes. About the existential dread of knowing your life is about to end and what you do with that and there's something interesting there except they don't explore it he just does a cheap flame joke and then we see a bunch of rubble out in space and then we have even more bad jokes about Meryl Streep's character having a trap stamp yes and she forgets her own son it's um yeah it's an ugly bitter film that doesn't inspire me to like um the personality of David Serrata or Adam McKay. Um, yeah, I, I had a very, I, I still have, but I'm, I'm a little bit further away from it than you, a very visceral negative reaction just to um, like, I don't mind telling a story like this, but telling it without any compassion for really any hero or, or humans that are taking things seriously and not looking at the ones that would have been trying to do something and just boiling it down to this, um, hyper negativity of these superstars playing boring characters. It's just like, I don't know. I, I feel like it, if anything, it's more like the end of, you know, cinema or something like it's, mm. it's expressing like this death knell of, um, you know, this idea of telling people what to do with, with film. Um, what do if you, anything. what, what makes something like Dr. Strangelove work for its time and still work today? As opposed to this, because I'm trying, because even Kubrick's cleverness, talent, and a, a screenplay that that at that point in time addressed a uh, lot of people that have 
uh, what we now call post-traumatic stress syndrome, but shell shock. That yeah, I mean that's that was a dark comedy for people that had night tears and still do if they're alive. Yeah, and it is also about the the blissful joy and ignorance of being stupid and going to war. But it's about war, and it's about going to um it's about the war for a good reason and it's making fun of it which is cathartic for that group of people this is not cathartic this is not for that group of people this is not for people that are shell-shocked and don't even know what ptsd is yet this is not from one of the greatest living filmmakers Uh, it's just so many deviations away yeah there's no joy in this movie at all no there's no cowboy swinging on on the missile mm-hmm. as it goes down there's there's none there's of that. no nazi scientist in his um confined to his chair yeah there's no lines that you can't fight in here gentlemen this is the war room mm-hmm. did you find any jokes funny in don't look up um i found jonah hill silly at the very very start and yes. i thought that the first time that we heard that the general charged for no reason was silly mm-hmm. and then everything got it's um it's okay so here's the metaphor that i would use to express this film adam mckay took a crane then he lifted a skyscraper to hit attack (laughs) that's that's what's happening you know there's a lot of pressure at first and then it's just it's just a mangled mess and there's there's nothing to it um so I'm going to ask you the most difficult thing to ask in a film that you hate like this, that is so ugly. Do you have a favorite scene, Patrick? So that's why I was asking if you actually laughed at anything. Because the one, the one thing I did laugh at, and I did laugh out loud, which is, which is rare. A full for, lull. I, yeah, a full lull. Not, not a ruffle, but a lull. Um, is there's this one joke where Jennifer Lawrence is just perplexed by why was it the general charged her for snacks mm-hmm. while she was in while she was in a waiting room and then maybe about half an hour later she just brings it back up um explaining why she thinks that general charged snacks at the waiting room and i found that funny i was just a it was just a strange callback that i was not expecting and that's kind of the surprise that's what this movie's missing little surprises like that that can make me chuckle how did you react to her talking about it like another half dozen times? Well, then, then once again, it becomes a skyscraper hitting it. Yeah. Um, First so, time was good. Um, yeah. If I had to pick a favorite scene, it would, and I'm not kidding, be when the credits start. <laughs> yeah. I, I really did not like this movie. Um, and I cannot wait to see if Adam McKay make something that doesn't suck and I'll let other people watch it first so that I don't have to watch something quite so ugly for over two hours. Um, again, Is he directing that Showtime? Um, the, not show, yeah, the show, when I say Showtime, I mean I believe the Los, he Los Angeles is, Lakers. Um, he is successioning it. So I think he's directing the first episode and then someone else will take over, which is what he did with Succession. Yeah, which is probably why su- Succession is good so I, much I haven't seen secession so i can't i don't actually know there there's a pretty find it good. big uh dip or or increase over time from the further it gets away from him it's it's quite interesting but it was his premise and he directed it so you know credit where credit is due um anyways let's get on to west side story 
I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm gonna think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to work. Who are you? Friend or foe? All right, Patrick. Steven Spielberg is back in cinemas with a remake of the musical play. I think it was released in 1957 originally as a musical, and then the film was 1961. How'd you react to this story of rivalry between the Jets and the Sharks? Uh, What is it now? 60 years later. So um, I will say that going into this, I was very cynical about it. There's no reason why a West Side Story remake should be happening, especially because the Robert Wise movie is such a classic and one of the best filmed movie musicals ever made. But I'm going to disagree with you there, but that's okay. But I was completely taken aback by just how how good I found Steven Spielberg's West Side Story to be. And I should have never doubted one of our greatest living filmmakers of all time. You may disagree. But... Oh, I agree there. Okay, good, good, good. I, I thought we were going to fight for a second. No, you're talking to a kid that grew up making Play-Doh, uh, Indiana Jones hats and whips. Like, mm. Spielberg is in this blood. <laughs> but I was just surprised by how much, um, how much life he breathes into this source material and i thought a lot of the adaptation choices from the original um stage musical and movie musical and the combination of two because the stage and movie version are very different in a lot of ways but kind of the combination he chooses to to add to this new adaptation to be extremely smart and thoughtful and we could get into more details on the adaptation choices that he makes but and i think tony kushner's um script and book adds a lot to a source material that was already that was lacking in a lot of ways i didn't realize he wrote a book on the film as well sorry i when i say book i i'm using the stage term of oh playbook or like when movie music when when musicals has lines of dialogue that's usually the book gotcha gotcha okay Mm -hmm. sorry that's my musical nerd coming out. I know Taylor is not as big of a musical person. He listens to me and another contributor talk about musicals, and then he completely glazes over. You're talking to a man wearing a Tick Tick Boom sweater, sir? Mm. Check yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you you uh, appear to have adored it. Um, what, what type of a rating um, would you place on this if you had to give an arbitrary rating out of 100 right now? Um, I would give it like an 80 to 85 pirouettes out of 100. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm more of the, the 60, 65 range. Um, I think the most interesting thing here is how thoroughly directed it yes. is by Spielberg and how informed it is in his lens choices of how he's ending a scene and then starting the next one Mm -hmm. off of those movements yeah and that is so absent in a lot of these other triple a filmmakers um we were briefly talking about yermo del toro earlier in his upcoming film nightmare alley and i watched it like literally right after west side story and um it it just really shows a difference in competence because his scenes are these fade out blacks or these fade in blacks that 
are totally unintuitive with how the previous scene or momentum was built in the editing process. And it, it, this is just so thoroughly crafted. You know, it's people always say that you can mute a Steven Spielberg movie and still understand the story because of how he uses the camera. And that's, I mean, that's as this, as on display as ever here. I think this is um, a, a great leap up from the post which um, in his filmmaking talents behind the camera, which is a fine movie, but this this really is blocked and shot in such a way that I was very convinced um, of its merit. And, you know, I just didn't particularly enjoy the um, the music or the Romeo and Juliet shtick, but that doesn't mean that it's bad by any means. Well, especially with musical scenes, there's such an apex of, emotion highness that usually musicals when a musical scene ends it's there's a built-in pause for applause but a movie can't do that so the way he cuts away from a musical scene to some sort of action um in the next scene i just thought was very revelatory yes i i don't have the familiarity with it i watched it um i watched the original a few days before i watched the uh the remake here and i i actually thought that a lot of the um cinematography choices were were poor in the original i thought that the mm. uh the fuzzy um sides of the camera to center on um the the main figures was very uh, unappealing choice it it really i mean it either shows its age or it shows a constrained budget one of the two i think it was coming off the sound of music though so i can't imagine the budget was very low um this just i i mean the casting works from top to bottom better for me the propulsiveness here is so much higher from the start like it really just mm-hmm. brings you in leads you by your nose and keeps you here in a way that the original hadn't so i i'm not as nuanced or familiar with the reasons why it's better or what choices he made but the choices that i'm aware that were choices that he's exhibiting and just with the camera are very terrific um yeah it, i just have some sensibility things where I didn't love it as much, but I, mm-hmm. I definitely echo a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, especially so um the original starts off with kind of this overhead shot of Manhattan and it generally I feel like it has um it shoots a lot of things from top down. While Spielberg here does a lot of bottom up, which I think mm-hmm. is a very interesting choice um for him to do. What it means I haven't quite put my finger on yet. But I just think I just think this isn't a simple shot-for-shot remake of the original 61 version. Spielberg's making a lot of uh, capital C choices yep. in this movie. And I think a lot of it works really well. well and- let me chime in here. I think that first and foremost, in a musical with dancing, mm-hmm. when you start at the feet mm-hmm. of dancers, it's a lot more intriguing. And when you start at the feet where people live and you're telling a story about a neighborhood, that's a lot more intriguing than the top-down thing. That's just what I, I would think off the top of my head. And speaking about, speaking about Neighborhood, a lot of this movie um, adds in um, adds in subtext or maybe text text about the gentrification of the Upper West Side. And as a person who went to, the school, who went to school in the Upper West Side, that felt particularly resonant with me. I went to school near the Lincoln Center area and learning a little bit about the history of how they just um, bought out families in order to tear down a bunch of apartment buildings and homes to build this cathedral to the arts, let's say. 
is very interesting to me. And that's kind of some of the smart things that I think it does to update this story, especially now that this is a movie that can look back at the time with hindsight while the original was was speaking about it during its time. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting points. And I I understand Spielberg has wanted to do this remake for a long time. And the uh the gestation process shows there there's mm-hmm. a lot of um just quality and thoughtfulness from the top to the bottom, from the neighborhoods and how saturated these tiny little side characters are, right? Like you get some of the um most intriguing depending on who you are, up and coming actresses relegated to maybe a minute with Maddie Ziegler and Talia Ryder. Um, Ziegler, who everybody knows from Sia's music videos, probably, who's been acting more than Talia Ryder, who's the cousin and never rarely, sometimes always. You see them for a second. Yeah. You know, and it's a bunch very of, interesting. A bunch of people making their movie debuts, mm-hmm. like Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria, and I believe David Alvarez hasn't been in the movie. He plays Bernardo, and he is also a relation. Yeah, so I'm forgetting who's is um David Alvarez's character the one with the gun at the end? No, no, no. He he plays Bernardo, who is the brother oh, the of Marie. Yes, okay. and of course Mike Feist has been in movies, but he's never had. And Mike Feist plays Riff. Yes, um, he he has been in movies before, but never in a um a role as juicy as this. And he he really adds a lot to a character that I've never thought of before. Yeah, I I was um I was taken by him. I, I actually have a different favorite, uh, Josh Andres Rivera. Um, so good was my favorite, and he plays Chino, um, who has the the gun at the end. And I I just I can't believe how much interiority that face yeah. has, and how many different emotions he can wear very easily. I I that's perhaps one of my favorite debut or it it might be my favorite debut performance um from an actor this year it's it's really something else which once again this this is what i'm saying about the smart deviations that um spielberg and kushner does with this movie um chino is a nothing character in both the musical um and the movie he's he's basically a plot device mm-hmm. but here we they just add so much to his character and um, Josh Andres Rivera himself, add, like you said, adds so much interiority. And even even Riff is given a much more bigger sense of interiority. This sense of betrayal he has of of Ansel Elgort's character, Tony, no longer being a uh, a jet. Yeah. Um, that genuine hurt. And one of my favorite adaptation choices is the way they do um, the song Cool, which for me has always been a cheesy song a dated song and i believe in the but here they make cool into this breakup number between tony and riff and which they're actually fighting over a an object but really it's a symbol of their friendship and this this choice of make originally the song the song is just between riff and the sharks it's tony is not involved in it and in the movie version it's placed after spoilers i mean it's Romeo and julia the death of riff mm-hmm. um it's placed after after that to kind of dampen down any emotion but here it's played as this um the song to explain this breakup of a friendship and i just thought that was a really smart choice 
yeah, I don't have the um, familiarity with these uh, song choices and how they're being used differently, but I, I, I do think that um, not knowing the names of them, watching the original and then watching how they're pulled off in this one, I like this one a lot more. There's a lot more um, energy. There's a lot more um, driving um, emotionality yeah. in what's happening where I'm invested in how the the choreography is going because it's mm-hmm. indicating who these characters are exhibiting themselves as in a way where the original was very much like we're going to perform well, but we're not performing well with the intention of building character arcs at the same yeah. time. And um, yeah, it's, it's thrilling. Um, There's also a brutality to the choreography and mm-hmm. in the rumble scene, especially, which is the kind of this fight scene between the jets and the shark, this confrontation. And I watched this movie with my wife, and we've seen West Side Story. We know how this all plays out. We also know Romeo and Juliet. We know how we know how this ends. And she had her hand over her mouth, and I was kind of taken aback by this, just how effective Spielberg as a filmmaker can make this this scene that we all know the results of into something as cathartic as it becomes. That's yeah, uh as someone who doesn't know if the rule is to always pay it off the same. Um, I, I was also invested. Um, I don't know what the name of the number is or if you already said it and it was cool, but the warehouse scene where Spielberg. Oh, so sorry. The, the rundown warehouse in the middle with the gun and they're fighting over the gun. Oh, oh, so you mean the shipyard? Maybe it was a shipyard. Yeah. Yeah, Cool. Cool. That's uh, cool. Okay. The way that Spielberg makes that single hole in the floor yes as important as every single other person is just totally like the gun is not as threatening as that hole in the floor i know it's a very thrilling sequence and as a like i think that he deserves nomination for best director um even though this isn't really in my top films of the year it's definitely my top directed films of the year it's just so thrillingly um engaging from a filmic standpoint, it's just the, uh, the themes and the narrative, you know, they don't really resonate in a way that, um, grips me. Um, but I mean, Ansel Elgort, Rachel Zegler, what do you think? Oh, Tony is inherently a boring role and usually it's played by wet blankets. Um, and Ansel gives it the appropriate amount of wet blanketness. I I put it as he was entirely and consistently without fail competent. Exactly. I never looked at him and said you're doing this wrong or bad or wanted him to do it different. And that's what Tony is. What can you do? That's that's the inherent problem with that character. I thought Rachel Zegler, however, gave a lot of interiority to Maria, another character who's usually boring and um. And I think she adds she adds a lot of um I think she adds a lot of emotions to her performances and I think she plays off the she plays off the she plays how young uh Maria is. And I, I think that's actually another smart adaptation choice of this whole movie, is that they play to the fact that these are basically teenagers, even if they don't look like teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um once again, the prelude to the cool scene, you have the sharks just playing guns, like playing almost cops and robbers, just shooting, play, um, play fighting with each other, which really just hides the fact that 
these are kids who are making dumb choices. Yeah, and I, I think that actually the thing that sells how young they are is the interactions with the the police and yeah. how effective the uh, performances of, gosh, it's Corey Stoll, I think, is the lieutenant. And then Corey Stoll and Brian Darcy James, another yes. musical favorite of mine. I think that those two really just sell that there, there's this big adult world closing in on you. And mm-hmm. the, um, gosh, that cop sequence where the woman locks herself in yeah. the, the Officer Krupke song sequence. Yeah, yeah, that's, oh man, that is one of that's definitely uh one of my favorite scenes of the year it's just absolutely terrific um i i also like the um the story they have with uh a a woman who maybe is transgender it's not really that clear to me mm-hmm. um anybody anybody any uh sorry her name is anybody's and she's she's in all the adaptations of west side okay. story but it's it's never it's never explicitly said what she is or stuff but here i think they they kind of play to the fact that maybe she is um at one she point she trans. says she's not a girl yeah, yeah um so i i don't know what she is but i i found that to be a very convincing character and yes a very emotional character that i don't really remember more than once like at the end of the original film like her saying like something like I'm not them. I don't want to have to leave the restaurant or whatever um, for some sort of a conversation. But I, I mm-hmm. didn't really remember that character. And I, I found the interiority and the compassion yeah. that anybody's has to, to be very uh, intriguing and layered Tony with another level that I was surprised by. Um, you know, I okay. think that's maybe one of the more interesting relationships that exists in the film with Tony. And can I say, just say, and I think this is a trait that all great filmmakers have. Spielberg just knows how to shoot faces. There's yeah. so many interesting faces that he gives the classic Spielberg close up to and the lens flare. And he just populates the gangs with interesting people and interesting characters that even though we don't necessarily learn their names, we just feel like we know who they are. There's this one person in the sharks who I just kept calling the little Richard character. <laughs> Because to me, he just looked like Little Richard, and mm-hmm. I and I love seeing him in every scene he was in. Um, yeah, I, I think Spielberg and a lot of directors that that are great that do know how to shoot faces, though, do shoot faces more beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's interesting. It's like, do you shoot beauty aesthetically, or do you shoot what a face actually looks like? Which is mm-hmm. something that you know happens in licorice pizza from paul thomas anderson where we're really looking at what a human face yeah looks like like a real normal person that has zits or crooked teeth or you, you know uh, a dry spot on their scalp or something in a way that um you, you know i i still think spielberg is, is a master but he's not as interested in what real humanity no. looks like but this heightened version um and i think there's a difference there in sensibility that makes me love a pta a little bit more than the spielberg the older i get but can we talk about how beautiful this movie looks because yes. i think please I th- please tell me why the most beautiful thing in cinema this year is in fact a puddle the puddle it's i don't know how he did it or i mean i can imagine how he did but it's just just the, that the idea of one take though like right i i was running in my head as i watched that and i was like well if you fucked this up like how long does it take for there to be no ripples in that puddle and to reset <laughs> right but even just the whole 
how how would you describe the aesthetic of this movie? Because to me, it looks like an Edward Hopper painting of just mm. of just just this um kind of like bold, fleshed out colors that it doesn't look like any other movie out it's there. It's like today. nighttime urban Havana bliss or right? something. Like there's there's simultaneously the fact that it's New York, but also like this idea of like Havana where everyone's, you know, not wealthy. The buildings don't look um beautiful, but they're they're well lived in and they're warm and mm-hmm. there's a, a sense of culture thriving and mm-hmm. there's this beautiful shadow castness to it all. Exactly. Yeah. There's just a there's just a sense of life and both blissfulness and melancholy. I think that's why I kept thinking of Edward Hopper, who I think is really good at capturing um urbanites and that sense of melancholic blissfulness of the city because i love i'm from new york city i love this sense of contrast of living in new york and even though this doesn't look like the city that i know today i think it really captures the feeling of being part of this world that is simultaneously oppressive and sad but well lived in and full of hope yeah i guess when i think of edward hopper it's just that those images are typically pretty clean Mm, and there yeah. are those scenes um with Anita like in in that area where it's not quite as clean uh mm-hmm. looking, but there's definitely like a light like I think I would agree like the lighting quotient of yeah. of his paintings is a lot of what Spielberg's doing here. Um do do you have like a least favorite choice or something that you really thought was absurd or didn't like in the film? Um so they place, uh, I think the they place the I feel pretty sequence back to where it belonged in the stage musical, which is after the rumble sequence, and that sequence usually kind of plays to some sort of dramatic irony of her feeling so blissful, not knowing what has already happened to her brother. Um, in the movie version, they place that more towards the beginning, and I think that works a little bit better for me, just because I think it takes it makes that song feel very irrelevant. Dramatically, it kind of helps give the audience a sense of kind of like a sense of ease and this comic song to help line the tension a little bit. But I think for this film version, it just felt gratuitous. Or yeah, super I, I think I agree. I I didn't know why I thought that was kind of off, but that, that makes a lot of sense. For a stage musical, it makes sense because it's... You kind of need that in the live setting. And that's also the beginning of Act 2. Number. The rumble leads to intermission. And then the first song back from intermission is I Feel Pretty. You need a big number to get the audience back in their seat. So I, that's why that works there. And the movie, I think, smartly brings that back to the front. Um, brings that to the front where it's describing her the blissfulness. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I have something a lot less nuanced um, mm-hmm. to whine about. Um, and it is Spielberg shooting under the bleachers, the kiss and romance sequence mm. between Tony and Maria with, I want to say more than a hundred lens flares <laughs> in very, very low light, meaning they're in a gymnasium underneath bleachers and there's lens flare. Um, it's one of the most absurd things that I think yeah. I've seen in a, a huge movie that is otherwise fairly grounded. Um, just to throw those J.J. Abrams-esque lens flares. Um, it, 
and not be even out in the gymnasium was pretty annoying to me. And I, I, it just, it felt like it was in a different movie at that yeah. one moment. I was like, this isn't, so, what are you doing? Well, this looks make, so beautiful. Why are there lens flares? <laughs> to, to do that arc to, for sake of argument, that's kind of, young, that's young love, baby. You get those lens flares, your heart's pumping. You're, you're feeling like, oh, this is the love of my life. Love at first sight. Lens, lens flare is, uh, here though is ugly and i don't know that i think the premise of young love is ugly would would be my differentiation there <laughs> mm-hmm. also the original the original cha-cha sequence in the movie is just one of the best se- in my opinion one of the best sequences where they kind of they kind of go to this otherworldly place um i also Something else that I don't think necessarily works as well is giving the song of Somewhere to Rita Moreno's character. Obviously, if we're going to have Rita Moreno in this heightened role um, in the movie as the Doc character, you're going to have to give Rita Moreno a song. Usually that's sung by Maria and Tony, which is essentially their them having sex. Um, <laughs> but um, I just don't think that necessarily works as well here even though Rita Moreno does give it its gravitas because she's Rita Moreno but I don't think it necessarily works as well as giving it to Maria and Tony what did you think of Rita Moreno Uh, I um I think like I said I think she gives its gives that role the appropriate gravitas they heighten Doc more in this movie and as they kind of do with every supporting character they kind of give them um more more weight and I think she gives Valentina, which is the name of the character, that sense of weight. And yeah, I think it was perfectly fine, honestly. Yeah, I um one thing that's interesting is I, I feel like the original West Side story, you might have a different reaction, really feels long. And this is a longer yeah. film than that. And it 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 didn't feel long as I was viewing it. Um it, it felt very um intriguing all the way through i wasn't sitting there on my hands going when when can i leave i i was fairly often intrigued by what was happening in frame um even yeah you know the scenes where they're going very slow and just doing dialogue or a slow song i was still um interested in the choices that were being exhibited in a way that i wasn't in the original um is there anything else you want to highlight or should we go over favorite scenes uh let's talk about our favorite scenes you give me yours first. Uh, I think I've already talked about. I really love what they do with the cool sequence. I once again, that was a song that I've, I've always Why don't thought. Why you describe aged. it a little bit? Sure, further. sure. Um, um, cool is this kind of interesting jazzy composition from Leonard Bernstein that is that to me, with its use of slang, feels very dated and silly. And every version I've seen of it is very silly. But this is the first time that I thought it it really propelled it to something that I can take a bite out of. And as I was saying before, this sequence comes when um, Riff, Mike Feist's character, gets a gun and Tony wants to stop the rumble from happening and he sees this gun. So this song becomes Tony pleading to Riff to just stay cool. Give me the gun. Don't do this rumble at... Don't do this rumble. You're only going to get yourself killed or in trouble. And Mike Feist's riff feeling a sense of betrayal that his best friend would would do this to him. And there's this sense of brotherly love between them, maybe even more than I, I, I who can say. 
but um there's a sense of love between them that seems to be shattering and this sequence makes this kind of a breakup of their friendship and like you said taylor there's this they do the they do the sequence in a bantam shipyard where there are holes in the on the pier and it literally gives a metaphor of it becoming a balancing act for both of them of what to do with their friendship what to do with their pride um and i just thought it was a brilliant choreography and really adding weight to a song that i've never particularly cared for yeah that's that's a well-placed argument um mine is definitely boring um so since mine is boring i will just double up on two things we already talked about i i think that the fact that a puddle is the most beautiful image of 2021 is really something and i can't get that slow pan uh of that puddle out of my head as the feet are walking through it and then i will also shamelessly plug one more time that uh uh police station song the officer crafty yes where uh, the woman locks herself in the cell to get away from the boys, and it's it's just an absolute hoot. That's mm-hmm. one of the most pleasant scenes I think I've seen in cinema this year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, just a choice of saying it in the police station where it's normally not said. Uh, I don't know. Spielberg, he's just showing why he's so good. It's it's kind of rude, honestly. I think for the Spielberg so. director might might be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and. Kushner's no slouch, too. He really adds a lot to this movie. No doubt. All right. Let's get on to The Hand of God from Paolo Sorrentino. Amore, non correre. Non ti preoccupava. Ti sei fatto grande. Guarda tua madre. Eternamente voglio restare Fabio. Patrick, this is a film that we diverge a little bit more interestingly on. I think that I'm um, in the mixed to positive camp, whereas you're in the negative camp on The Hand of God. Um, why don't you give me your, your initial reaction? Huh. Honestly, I saw this about half a week ago, and a lot of it has already left my mind. Which is a rude thing to say to um, Paolo Sorrentino's film, but this movie, um, I think, generally, I love these kind of memoir movies. I know Sorrentino has cited Fellini a lot, so this is kind of like a little armor court esque. But I love movies like Cinema Paradiso or Barry Levinson's Baltimore Trilogy. Things of like filmmakers just exploring their childhood and exploring their families and uh, meeting all these strange characters. And when it does talk, when when Sorrentino does delve into this weird and wacky family that he has, I found that slightly amusing. But then he kind of dips into this more, I would say, existential type of... It's very Fellini. He's an Italian filmmaker. What can you say? Not to be reductive. Um, 
I guess I'm I'm struggling a little bit to exactly point to why I just felt very I just felt very detached from this movie throughout. I was very aware that I was just sitting in a movie theater watching this movie on assignment. Oh boy. That's uh that's not the most pleasant um angle to take. Um <laughs> yeah, it drags. The film drags. I think um you know the the title of the film is The Hand of God which is reference to the uh Diego Maradona goal that was mm-hmm. scored when he was acquired by Naples um and he literally scored with his hand um you know a much better film about Diego Maradona is the film Maradona from um gosh Asif Kapadia Mm. who made the uh, absolutely fantastic Amy documentary on Amy Winehouse. Um, So I didn't know that going in. I thought the hand of God was going to be like a setting or something a little bit more specific. And it it definitely gets into like this Italian magical realism. Yeah. Doesn't really work. But then there's this other thing, which is like the beginning of the film is gorgeous. It's yes. absolutely gorgeous. The camera is panning along these waves and you begin to feel like you're being brought into a sumptuous oil painting. that's going to be meticulously brush stroked out with these great camera choices. You pass these offshore racing boats or perhaps smuggling boats, which, um, you know, is a great foreshadowing touch that they spend no effort on there's this helicopter hum and you realize that this flying vehicle is overtaking these boats that are hauling and you realize how long it's been since you've seen a helicopter shoot Mm. aerial cinematography instead of a damn drone and that's just (laughs) thrilling and then it pulls up alongside this classic car that's slowly driving down the street and then it pans back and it looks at a helicopter landing on an island that looks like what someone would call the hand of God, which is what I I thought it might be about until we were introduced to the real reason. Um, And there's, there was just such great promise and and artistry at the beginning that I don't really know where it all went wrong. If, if uh, like I said earlier, this is just an issue with Paolo not killing his darlings and thinking that everything matters more than it should. And thinking that it's much more, um, clever to leave his sister in the bathroom for the entire film than it actually is and then have her come out with zero payoff and no interest like it's way too late for that to to work um but then there's other things like the fake bear um yeah like showing us the fake bear as his parents are dying which is weirdly funny um Mm -hmm. like did did you see that? A lot of people didn't see it. I, I um, talked to some people after the film was over about it and they didn't notice it because they were focused on the slumped figures. But um, there's his parents die. There's the fireplace and then there's the parents on the couch and then there's a glass door and there's a soft light and yeah. someone standing in the bear costume is there. And it's like, oh boy, there's, I liked that touch. I, I think he does a lot with, um, foreground and background and I, throughout the movie i think he does a little bit of playing i think i remember in the in one of the opening scenes um in where um he's oh his sister goes to see what's the religious figure that she sees i can't remember right now Ah, uh, the little monk 
the little monk, and but also what was the angel that she sees? Oh, I didn't realize she saw an angel. You're talking about or, the figure that drove her? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that I an angel? I don't remember his name. I didn't think that was an angel. I thought that was just like... I mean, I, now that you're saying that it's an angel, but I don't remember it being introduced as an angel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think I think he does... He 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 does interesting things with for uh foreground background and and that scene in particular I know is uh um some things but about the bear itself I don't think <laughs> that's not coming to mind honestly okay that's unfortunate because it's it's a I mean do you remember when he was scared to death and he hurts himself with the bear mm-hmm. when he comes back after he's been kicked out and they're moving the furniture no. <laughs> No. Um, so he's been he's been kicked out of uh, the house for having an ongoing affair with his business associate. Yes. At uh, a later point, she says that he'll be able to come back next week because she needs help to move the furniture in. And then the first scene that we see them together, mm-hmm. he's helping these men bring this couch into a building. And um, they're making jokes about whatever is rustling in the brush being uh or not jokes they're saying that it's a bear and they're scared and he's like no it's a cat and he starts going meow meow um and and smooching for it to come and then uh, a bear stands up and he runs and flees and falls and hurts himself that same bear is later standing outside the glass door Mm. center frame as they die Mm. as we watch them die that bear is standing there which is you know, it's it's a, this interesting balance of humor and death. Um, yeah. And does that ring any bells or? No, no, no. Yes, I do. I do remember that scene. Sorry, I thought you were still talking about the bear during the parent death scenes because I don't, I don't necessarily remember that part. But what what you're saying, what you're saying about this interesting contrast of there's. This interesting contrast of kind of life and death within within this movie. Um, I think we're kind of, we're kind of, we're kind of seeing. Well, I think there's a lot he's doing with um, contrast in general. Kind of this horror and Madonna figure with with that sister. Kind of this um, fa- um, with his family um, where there's kind of lots of love and also kind of lots of cruelty. There's that. There's that grandmother who would, who only says um, profanity, but there's love there, and this the grandmother this, has beaten. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think he's dealing. I think he's dealing a lot with this contrast of this kind of loving family that's also terrible. Yeah, um, there's this interesting line that the brother says. Um, to him after at some point after their, their parents had died he says you have to be the perseverant one because i can't mm-hmm. be yeah and i think that that's actually kind of one of the keys to unlock whatever the fuck is happening in this film mm-hmm. because he has these scenes with antonio campuano near the end and you know he's met a filmmaker and this filmmaker offers to make films with him and uh tells him not to go to rome to stay here and um you know how many stories there are here but what's what's interesting is that capuano wouldn't have made a film yet 
because this is all happening during the hand of God year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that was like 1986. And I don't think that that Capuano made a film until the the latter half of the 90s. So there's there's something I, I don't really know what the timelines are in this film for one and why Capuano is this figure um like what do you know if he was a, a stage director or what was happening because i thought he was making a film but he wouldn't have been making a film at that time it's there's this weird thing where maybe he's juggling all this stuff that was important from his childhood together um mm-hmm. without the timelines actually syncing up yeah i honestly i honestly don't know much about him um about him um no, yeah, I don't know. Well, why don't you tell me what you uh, disliked so much? Because I'm I'm talking about it from a fairly positive perspective so yeah. far. I do find it intriguing, um, but there is you know some rough cinematography and other sequences. There is some uh, absurd, in a negative way, isms going on. What, what do you dislike? What did you not respond to? I I would say this. I'm not necessarily the biggest Paulo Sorrentino fan. I think I think what he does with he's a filmmaker that I think when he's dealing with excess, which I think a lot of his movies do do does deal with Il Divo, mm-hmm. The Grand Beauty, um, things like that. I think he does that interestingly, but he's never been kind of this um this emotionally earnest filmmaker at least i've never thought so and so i was kind of surprised by the subject matter of this movie because i thought oh okay interesting we're going delve into his childhood and he's going to take a look at his childhood from this perspective but then i think there's kind of when i'm talking about this dueling contrast i think there's a genuine meanness to the entire movie um, especially with the way he treats there, there is from the family i don't yes. think that there is from our central character no, no no um who's played by i think filippo scotty and i'm mm-hmm. forgetting the name of that character um yeah, fabietto his... who's later called fabio right which and... is which is kind of his what's his called his um stand-in stand-in um yeah but i think there's a there's a way that and I think I think a lot of Italian filmmakers do this too, but there's kind of a grotesqueness that he kind of overlays to a lot of the people within his family. That I think for yeah, whatever ugly reason, decadence, yeah, ugly decadence, which is great when you're when you're doing when you're trying making comment on um, excessive figures like he does in his previous films, but in this one where it feels more grounded and like I I was. I think I was imagining that I'm going I was going to see this you know kind of kind of like radio days esque movie where he's kind of like oh this is my child isn't it grand but also they're so silly. Um the grotesqueness just kind of turned me off. Um yeah through it and I was just never on its wavelength. Yeah there there's you mentioned Fellini and I I mean I see how I, I would say that it's like inspired by a lot of choices Fellini made, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't play Fellini as like his um, obese aunt is like you're saying it's it's mean spirited. Yeah, even the, even her her boyfriend who has the Aldo. electric voice. Yes, but 
in conjunction with it makes the the like the dark comedy work for me in a way that don't look up it doesn't work where the uh the gorgeous um aunt is you know she unscrews and throws the battery out while she's uh while she's sunbathing like that was just so funny and cruel at the same time that it's it's an interesting tone that i haven't really seen that much Mm -hmm. especially from i feel like sorrentino himself doesn't usually delve in this type of humor i don't know if you agree with that i i'm not that familiar so i actually don't like the young pope which i think is what most people know him from um but i adored youth and that's it that's all i've seen i thought oh, youth okay. was awesome and i i really thought i was going to get something that um pleasurable and like fun and i, I remember it being very meticulously shot yeah. um and that is not what i i got here you know that movie's like paul dano and jane fonda Kaitel, kane vice mm-hmm. like it was um and it was you know looking back on life and lusting for youth in this way that i i do think is present here but it it was a lot more charming which says more about michael kane and harvey Keitel than anything else <laughs> yeah yeah, I think I generally just didn't find this particularly charming or engaging. And I think my brain just kind of, and this is kind of, I feel like you're seeing this from the way I'm talking about. My brain just kind of shut off from it at a certain point, which yes. is never a good thing. And I apologize on my behalf and on the film's behalf for not giving it that chance or trying to really actively work to engage with it. Because at a certain point, I just kind of like shut off from it. There's uh yeah, it's interesting when a film kind of creates that response. For me, there's these certain moments that I think are really lovely. And then mm-hmm. like you're talking, there's a lot of uh, ugliness or drabness that is um, very unengaging. You know, like I've never been more uninterested in someone hanging upside down like ever <laughs> yeah. in my life. Like it's just, it was so like garishly stupid like i i I had no idea why that was inserted there other than to be like look at you're being raised around arts and culture or something but um the the thing that that like comes to mind is the the beauty of the um the common man you know what sound does uh um uh, offshore boat make when it's going 20 kilometers an hour or whatever they said right that's that's beautiful Mm -hmm. that is so beautiful and the way that he delivers that line the final time when his friend is you know going to sentencing in the following weeks like that is so much more beautiful than so many other things that this film does. And it's so small, just this audio thing. And yeah. there's moments like that that make me really glad I watched it. And um, they're really impactful scenes and, and great moments. Um, and I, I found like the mean spirited phone call um, that was made by the mother to the neighbor that she doesn't like. Yeah. Where she gives her the part in the Fellini film. Like I just, that was hilarious to me and the way that the husband forces her to go tell her and they all have to sit down at the table like that that was just joyous and silly but then there's there's all this other stuff um you know and it's it it very much is a depiction of life or whatever um for him 
but it it doesn't really come together in any way um, other than him just getting on a train going to Rome as soon as Capuano tells him that's not what he should do. And clearly it worked out for him. Yeah. And we get so this year we also saw Belfast, which is another kind of film in a sense. Which a, you a, did not respond well to. I did not respond to. And the thing is, I love I love these memoir movies. I love these. I love I love. I like feel I said, like support. you don't. <laughs> well, so no. Cause, well, maybe I love the 80s ones because I really do. I really do love a movie like Avalon from Barry Levinson. Um, OK, I don't think I've seen that. Radio Days is a personal. It's. Radio Days was like my first Woody Allen movie, and so I have this, I have this soft spot. That's for a it. great one. And also, I love Cinema Paradiso. So if we're going to Italian front, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know why I've been bristling at these memoir movies recently or these movies about these filmmakers' childhood. Um, yeah, I did not respond well to. Let, let me either. sell you on a, a better, um, you know, memoriam type of a film. How about All That Jazz? Huh? Oh. God goodness i love all that jazz it's one of my favorite movies of all time but i i wouldn't i would i wouldn't call that necessarily i wouldn't call that in a similar vein to this one because he doesn't really delve into his childhood the way um yeah the way but it Belfast is does. it's still semi-autobiographical i see what yeah. you mean you mean a childhood um, yeah the one where they like oh look at my wacky family look at my look yes. at how nostalgic yeah radio days is. does pull that off really really well i haven't thought about that too it's just I, I love all of those movies from Alan, so um, maybe but because that's an radio comparison. Maybe because Radio Days plays off like a sketch movie as and well. It, and it plays which is in his wheelhouse, but it also plays off radio premise, mm-hmm. which is also heavily um in his wheelhouse from all the short story writing that he did. So yeah. there's there's a an interesting reasoning there. Um I, I will I think, say that the faces, you, you made a comment about yes. the faces in Spielberg. I do think that the faces here really express this oh, idea yeah. of Naples and what a, a Naples family looks like and yes. kind of this weird um, regality that everybody has, even though they're all living in the same apartment building. You know, there's a baroness who who stomps on the floor and mm-hmm. gets gets the ceiling hit with a broom to interact with people, but everybody pretends she's a baroness. Yeah. Um, this, there's, I, I, I don't know. It, it, um, I definitely will have this stick with me more. I yeah. didn't respond to it particularly engagingly. I thought, it, I really thought it was going to be like, you know, youth where I was just bowled over and fell in love. And that's not what happened here. And the dangers of, you know, expectations. Mm-hmm. I would say Tony Cervello, who plays um, uh, Fabio's bro- oh, not brother, father, yes. who is a Paulo Sorrentino favorite, is always great. And he has one of the best faces for cinema right now, too. Yeah, I don't think I've seen the other films that he's been in because I'm so unfamiliar with Sorrentino. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he he had a great face and he had that the great in-between of comedy and seriousness. Yeah. Um, he was a perfect dad character. Yeah. And the interplay and the romance of the whistling between him and the wife played by Teresa Sapanagello. Uh, So it's Severio and Maria who are the parents and that interplay of, you know, these cooing romance uh, noises and the fact that he's had an affair going on for at least a decade, I think, um, is just it. It paints a very interesting picture that um, for me will stick with me, unlike you. Mm -hmm. 
No, and I I genuinely find I genuinely find the Tony Cervello scenes and um should I pronounce this name? <laughs> Teresa Saponagello. That's I, better I than my attempt. <laughs> I generally find those scenes affecting. And maybe it's also because of my prior connections with that, with Tony Servillo, because like I said, he was in the, the, the Great Beauty and El Devo. He played Berscaloni in Laurel. And he's great in all those movies. Those are all blind spots that I need to get mm-hmm. to. Um, another just face that I, I loved was uh, Renato Carpentieri, who played mm. Uncle Alfredo, the lawyer who'd lost 14 cases in a row yeah. and uh, said things like the only reason you didn't die is because of Diego Maradona um, when when his parents die. And he's like, why? Why weren't you there? Why were you skiing? And he says, because I I was watching the game because we have the tickets. And he's like, Diego Maradona saved your life it's it's all maradona like his whole life is is soccer and it's so interesting to see i guess a european version of that crazy uncle who thinks that football is the reason that life exists um yeah you know in europe it's just i he he brought that to life for me um and then patrizia is uh who's played by luisa renier is absolutely flabbergastingly beautiful and it, yes it I mean, the camera and Paolo clearly loved her Um, and the depiction of her going crazy, but still being clever and funny is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a really intimate representation of something that you would go through really privately as a family. Um, And it's it's all those little notes that make me like it. But for some reason, when I'm watching it, I'm like, really? this is all there is and it's this long yeah i don't know i think that's why i'm having such a hard time with this movie is like all the all the little pieces feel like they work for me i just don't know what it is about the entire film that just became nothing in my brain i i (laughs) think it's the lack of animus like there's nothing Mm. there's no actual trajectory um for the character uh fabietto like he's not really doing anything he just has his cassette player and his headphones around his neck all the time he never actually listens to something with us um so we never get in his headspace so we're just seeing things happen to him that he's in like the world he's in but we never feel like we know him yeah, even him falling in love with movies and art and he's he had that whole scene where he's like i've only seen three or four movies and we see him watch something even then i just don't really didn't really feel that type of trajectory for him either yeah there's there's a tonal mismatch of mm-hmm. uh what we're told and what expectations are yeah and that there's no meat in the middle where he actually loves cinema i mean i i do love the once upon a time in america um motif of, of just always watching that over and over because why would you watch something else when you have a movie of such uh immensity yeah. and quality but I, yeah there's there's an issue with just make a bigger film and it also begs the question like when are you gonna get de niro dude like <laughs> you love him this much go get him yeah <laughs> um so i it sounds like there, there's not too much more on this one do you want to give me a favorite scene um, I do think the most interesting scene is um, how would I describe it? Uh, 
Fabio's um um uh, loss of his virginity. That's that a, is an interesting scene where that, he has to brush her slit. Yes. And that that scene was just so absurd in a way that I can't help but find it interesting and compelling. Yeah, it's it's um I almost don't want to talk about it just because I just want to And that's why someone. I didn't talk about it, is because yeah. it's icky, but it's it's like you're watching a car crash, so you have to look. Yeah, yeah. It um it it is a car crash, but we do have to look. That's that's exactly what's happening. And she's you, you know, the line at the end of it of um my job is done, now you look to the future. I, yeah. I really like that question. I think that's yeah. a great question. Um to to pose of you know, when you're this young, how do you get someone to recover from grief and you distract them and then you make them excited for something like sex with someone um, who's younger, you know, especially yeah. in a more sex positive society than America. Um, yeah. And even so. the capper, the capper in the scene afterwards where the brother's like, oh, you just had sex, didn't you? Yeah. It was just yeah. Like, that dramatic irony of like knowing how it happened is, was also and And he's for me. fully blushing in that scene. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very cute. funny. Um, and yeah, there, there's these little echoes. That's that's a great choice. Um, so my favorite scene is going to be two scenes again. I'm going to cheat. It's the first scene, which I already described. Um, but then it's also um, a, a scene at near the very end of the film where he's boarded the ferry and it's nighttime. And the ferry is taking off and there's all these um, nameless people unclear faces who were hooting and hollering and living the summertime that his brother had just told him about. And they're all leaping off of the dock where the ferry connects. And it shows this disconnect between people that can um, just live in the moment mm -hmm. and him trying to pursue that thing. His brother told him about perseverance yeah. And not staying in this delusional world for the Isle of Lost Boys and going back to face death. Um, I just think it, it really sells the film. Yeah. Um, speaking of of lovely soccer of soccer moments or football moments, um we off off mic we were talking about uh what do we see when we look in the sky? There's lots of great Foot, um, love of football and soccer moments in that film that I was oh, thinking fantastic. a lot about during this one. Good to know. Um, any final notes or are we good? No, I'm, I think it's interesting that two of the films that we talked about today uh, are Netflix releases and Netflix is really like just releasing these interesting movies. I know we have The Lost Daughter coming up. Um, I don't know how interesting that Sandra Bullock movie is yet. I haven't Watched yes, it, it but, just came out for us today, yeah. I think, or maybe it was yesterday. Unbelievable, which is not being responded to well by critics, from what I understand. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's interesting that the moves that they're that they are releasing, and I don't know was this produced by Netflix or is this, or is this just the, I believe this one was produced by Netflix. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what's interesting is that they did produce uh, Parallel Mothers as well, um, but that will come out next year, I believe. Oh. Um, even though it's had a theatrical run, it'll come out next year on Netflix. Um, 
so between in my opinion i i really liked parallel mothers so i mm-hmm. i do think that between uh the the lost daughter and uh this one it's they they've or parallel mothers they've got um at least two good movies yeah and whether or not like paulo sorrentino or not um he's someone that i think should be making movies i can agree with that on that note let's uh get out of here thank you so much for joining me today patrick uh why don't you tell everybody where they can follow you and find you and all that good stuff geez i need to remember my handles <laughs> I've never had to talk about my handles before. Um, you can follow me on uh, Letterbox at H-O-H-A-O-S-T-E-R 15. That's Hoster 15. Um, you can also follow my writing on drinkingandmovies.com. Um, I I have some exciting movies coming up. Um, I'm going to be... I've convinced Taylor to let me write about children's movies. So I'm excited you to write have. about... <laughs> I'm excited to write about Sing 2 and Rumble soon, so we'll see how that goes for me. And how about Twitter? And on Twitter, I'm at weird underscore Pat or Patrick124. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. Till next time. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant.